It's the fall of 1984. Paula Godfrey, having just recently graduated high school, is on the hunt for a solid job. She is looking for more than the average retail or service industry position. Hoping to take the following steps towards her bright future, she stumbled upon a sales representative position for not one, but two companies, Equi Plus and Equi Two. This would be an excellent position for her, plus the company was planning on sending her to San Antonio for training. Excited by this opportunity, Paula happily accepts. On the 1st of September, 1984, an employee came to pick her up from her family's home. The man is well-mannered and exceptionally friendly. The two quickly pack up their belongings, say their goodbyes, and head out for the airport. This is the last time that Paula's family or anyone else would ever see her again. In 1990, the internet as we know it was created, an invention of infinite possibilities and unknown potential. There are now over 2 billion websites currently in existence, a wealth of information, functionality, and social media. However, if you dig deeper, there lies more beneath the surface. The strange, bizarre, and dark corners of the net. Welcome to the Weird Wide Web. Welcome back to the Weird Wide Web! Woo! I'm Yale, joined by Niall, hey. as usual, and we're back again with another internet deep dive. I wonder what's gonna happen. Ooh. We're covering serial killers. <gasps> right, right, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I okay. Hey, no takeovers. No takeovers. No, no, no. Back, back to, uh, back to the way things are. Yes. The, the, the right way. No, that's not. I, I very much enjoyed uh, the takeover last week, and I'm hoping for much more. I would say my biggest disappointment is that it was a surprise, and I couldn't think of more horse puns. I think that's my biggest disappointment, is the lack of horse puns that I could have just locked and loaded in my oh, yeah. joke machine gun. Well, knowing you, you probably thought about them on your ride home, so you can just use them this, this week. I'll just, I'll just throw in some horse puns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, we're talking, we're talking about serial killers this time. Yep, and of course, we're going to cover... It's really just going to be a deep dive into the summer of 84. Because <laughs> if we're covering serial killers, it's, it's spoiler alert, he's a serial killer. Whoa. Are you going to spoil the summer of 84 that came out in 1984? No. I, I'm in my Wayback Machine. <laughs> the Wayback Machine. There's burgers everywhere. <laughs> no, we are talking about the internet's first serial killer bill gates no he's the first internet uh steve jobs steve jobs <laughs> he technically killed himself oh <laughs> but by his lack of understanding of science i guess i don't know he really just didn't want any kind of treatment for a very treatable yeah. disease himself or all the malaysian kids in the factories yeah not great we're talking about John Edward Robinson Sr., the internet's first serial killer. I'm, I, I love 
true crime and serial killers and all that stuff. And he's a very interesting serial killer because he he's like almost more a con man. We're, we're going to get into like a very catch me if you can. I love Leo. True crime. Yeah. So it's kind of like catch me if you can. <gasps> wait, except, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, hit me. Uh, out of us, who's Leo? Who's Tom Hanks? I think I'm Christopher Walken. <laughs> I don't think I can live up to either of those two. I think I hit a watch up my butt and then uh, lied to my family about how poor I was. That sounds pretty accurate, actually. (laughs) Is that the plot of Catch Me If You Can? That's the plot of his character, right? Yeah. Interesting arc there. Yeah. Then he passes. He goes, oh, no, I'm bad. (laughs) And that's my Christopher Walken impression. Oh, no. You can take that to the bank. Dead. Whoa, is that death coming my way? Oh, no. This watch, it's up my ass. But yeah, unlike hot boy Leo, there's much less um, schmoozing and pretending to be a fun doctor and marrying people and more um, women getting murdered. Oh, so like, if we put it in internet terms, less catfish, more uh, dead dish we're <laughs> dead girl dead girl okay <laughs> so let's get into it uh i just want to a little disclaimer for everybody we're going to be covering the topics of rape and murder and a lot of really really unfortunate uh topics so just be forewarned that there are some very graphic points in this um in this breakdown yeah, I just find it funny that we're given a warning for this one. And sorry if I forgot to warn you for the graphic horse fucking I talked about the last time. So we got some complaints and uh, we're back now. Yeah, but mainly from the furry community because we offended them, I think. Yeah. And honestly, fuck them. Oh, um, we're trying to go I'm Dave Chappelle against the furries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Like what you like as long as it doesn't affect me. Uh, and I'd also like to attribute uh, a lot of the information that we pulled is from a book, uh, Anyone You Want Me To Be, A True Story of Sex and Death by Stephen Singular, who, not plural, just Stephen Singular. Uh, that's, that's a lonely life. <laughs> it is. It is. So let's get into the life of the world's first internet serial killer. Jonathan Edward Robinson Sr. was born on a snowy December day in 1943. He was the third of five children. John's mother, Alberta, was an incredibly strict disciplinarian who was nicely complimented by his father, Henry, and his crippling alcoholism. However, despite the uphill battle of his home life, John strived to become more significant than his situation. At the age of 12, encouraged by his father, John joined the Boy Scouts of America. By 1957, John had risen to the rank of Eagle Scout. He was then given an exceptional opportunity to lead a group of 120 Boy Scouts at the Royal Command performance before Queen Elizabeth II, a commendable feat that was enhanced only by a kiss on the cheek from Judy Garland backstage. Whoa! An anecdote that Robinson claimed was the talk of the papers when he returned. Pushing on to become the exemplary youth defined by the late 1950s, John enrolled in Quigley Preparatory Seminary School in Chicago, 
This was a school for aspiring young boys to pursue a commitment to priesthood. It would only be one year before John dropped out of the religious school due to poor grades and increasing disciplinary issues. And I have a feeling it has to do with something similar to our last episode. I don't know that he fucked any horses. No, I'm talking about (laughs) things and butts. Things and butts. Things and butts. Departing from his pursuit of the godly life, in 1961, John enrolled in Morton Junior College. He began his studies to become a radiology technician from the trade school. However, after two years, this too would be abandoned by Robinson. Shortly after his early departure from schooling, he met and married Nancy Jo Lynch. The two would go on to have their son, John Jr., a year later. During this time, despite not finishing school, Robinson had leveraged a job at a local hospital. After several embezzlement accusations directed towards John, he and his family picked up and fled to Kansas City. The two would then have their daughter, Kimberly, and John's quick descent into the criminal life began. Whoa. So I was going to say, didn't, weren't you, didn't you start training for, to become a radiology technician or something like that? Mm-hmm. You were training to be some kind of medical technician for machines and hospitals, Those right? stuff. Yeah, in the sixties. In the sixties. Um. Yeah, radiology technician. What is that in the si- Like you, I don't even know what that would involve. You just kind of open up some nuclear waste in front of people and go, "Hey, I can see your bones. Are you sick yet?" <laughs> um. No. So mine was. Yeah, I looked into it. Um. Cardiac perfusionist. So it's someone who kind of runs the um heart lung machine thing, mm. basically pumping blood out through an open heart surgery. It goes through a machine, which basically acts as a mechanical heart, and then you can like pump in the different uh, medicine you need in there, and then it just goes back in to the the patient while they're on the table. Uh, gotcha. So nothing to do with radiology. Absolutely nothing. Oh, to do I with was what really you're hoping you were going to be our expert on this uh, portion of the podcast, but uh, kind of similar though. A specific I mean, technician. I did end up working in a hospital. As a transporter, yeah, and so I, like, uh, and like John, uh, you he also didn't finish this <laughs> trade; uh, <laughs> he dropped out. So yeah, there you go. That's fine. Um, but no, so I have actually been in contact with a lot of like um, X-ray techs and, and stuff like that, um, and I've gotten to see kind of what they do. Basically, you sit there behind the the wall, and I don't know what it would have been then. I get is it like taking a big picture back then? Yeah, what this is only the '60s, but still, like it's not like they have computers like we have that are running the images now. Yeah, it would probably just be on film, and then they're like and then almost they just in a hold it up maybe room that like. Or I guess was in the '60s. Was the '60s the goof when it was like all in the machine, so there was no like picture. You just like looked at it, and you couldn't save it. You had to just remember. Uh, I think it's the third rib that's broken. Draw it. Draw it. <laughs> Quick. Get the cartoonist in here. Draw which rib is broken. Arriving in Kansas City, Robinson forged his credentials and secured a job as an x-ray technician at a children's hospital. Staying true to his deceitful ways, in 1969, John was arrested for embezzling upwards of $33,000 from the hospital. It is also highly recorded 
that John Robinson had multiple sex affairs with staff members and patients throughout his time at the hospital, starting a long-standing trend that persisted throughout John's life. In 1970, he would slip through the legal system and avoid any jail time, receiving a mere three years probation. John violated this probation not even a year later. What did he do? Fuck a horse? <laughs> Apparently, because none of these people ever get fucking prosecuted. <laughs> he would have gotten less time on probation if he fucked a horse. Yeah. Violating his parole in 1971, John moved to Chicago and joined the R.B. Jones Company as an insurance salesman. Nancy Joe Lynch remained in Kansas City with their now four kids, having just had twins, Christopher and Christine, that same year. Ugh. Ugh. You're going to name twins the same fucking name? Christopher and Christine, yeah. Hey, Chris. Chris, can you get... No. Chris... The other... The... the one with the wiener. <laughs> Chris. They call him Weeder Chris and hey, not Weeder Chris. Chris. <laughs> Get over here, not Weeder Chris. John's life as an insurance salesman came to an abrupt end when he was arrested for embezzling from the company in the same year he joined them. John's parole was extended, and he was ordered to return back to Kansas City. Again, it, dude, it's, it blows my fucking mind how much this dude slips through the like judicial system. He got... He was on parole for embezzling, got arrested again for embezzling, and they're like, hey, we're going to make your parole just a bit longer, and you get out of Chicago. Yeah, well, even worse before that, he gets caught embezzling, and then they're like, you know where you'd be good? Insurance. (laughs) Well, I think, I'm pretty sure he used a fake name Uh, when he went to that, uh, that when he moved to Chicago, because he wasn't supposed to be in Chicago to begin with. It would have been so easy to be a criminal back then. Yeah. No like, shit. no cameras, no nothing. I would have robbed a hundred banks. And all I had to do was, like, hold up a fake mustache or something and, <laughs> and run around. Yeah, and even if you get caught, you just get probation. Yeah, <laughs> I just move a city. Back in Kansas City and fed up with constantly working for someone else, John created his own company. The company was doing well and all seemed to be turning around for John Robinson. Then... In 1975, the SEC would come crashing down on him. John had been under investigation for running a share scam through the company. He obtained, he obtained an indictment from the SEC for fraud, mail fraud, false representation, and forgery. This closed the book on his new business and forced John to look for new financial opportunities. However, Despite all of John's accusations, embezzling, and SEC indictments, he became a pillar in the community. Mirroring his early childhood interests, he had become a Sunday school teacher, scoutmaster, and was coaching a Little League baseball team. John was soon accepted onto the board of directors of a small local charity organization. Not shortly after joining the board of directors, John would earn their Man of the Year award. In celebration, John hosted a luncheon for himself, which was covered by a few local reporters. Only once those reporters posted small write-ups, many board members and the mayor realized their names and letters of recommendation had been forged by Robinson. Not only that, but the Man of the Year award itself was, in fact, John's own creation. Somehow, though, this outrage and negativity only seemed to impact Nancy Joe and the children. I, th- 
the more you are talking about this guy, the more I'm kind of liking him. <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I'm saying like right now. But also, you said he's not like Leo. He had to be like a charming guy or something to be able to pull this off. He, uh, yes, is known to be very, very charming. And we're going to see that even more and more. Um, yeah, as all kind of successful con men are, he was, yeah, he's kind know. of like a slightly portly guy, but not overweight, like very kind face, you know, super unassuming, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and very good with kind of talking his way in and out of situations. Got it. So he had the charm of, say, uh, a Ted Bundy with a little portly face of a John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, yeah. Kind of... <laughs> I never heard John Wayne Gacy described so jovially. <laughs> well, he was a clown. He was a clown. <laughs> yeah, he was, unfortunately. His last business having crumbled, John was on the hunt for new employment. He was able to secure a job as employee relation manager at Guy's Foods, a local grocer in the area. Like clockwork, in 1980, John was soon accused and arrested for embezzlement and theft at the store. John ended up pleading guilty to stealing a $6,000 check from the business and found himself facing seven years in prison. John leveraged a deal with the prosecutors in 1982 and managed to only end up serving 60 days in jail. This guy's good. This guy's real good. He does have lawyers. Like, I, I, his lawyers are very good, too. 1984. Oh, my favorite year! <laughs> <laughs> was Na- it the summer? Uh, Please tell me. I don't actually know. Yeah, it was the it's summer. It's the whole year. No, so it's the summer. summer is, yes, it's the summer. The summer. Of 1984. Is this about the Cape May Slayer? John is released from his 60 days of hard time and falls right back into the grift. He creates two shell companies, Equi Plus and Equi Two, to give him credibility when scamming any number of helpless victims. To provide more legitimacy to the two companies, John devises hiring a sales representative to represent both companies. A young 19-year-old Paula Godfrey answers the call, and Robertson quickly hires her. He explains that the company wants to first provide her with some training in San Antonio. In September, he picks Paula up from her family home, becoming the last day her family or anyone would see Paula again. After four days and no contact, Paula's father flies all the way to San Antonio and tries to track her down at the presumed hotel she was at. The hotel employees inform the distraught father that they have no records of his daughter. Paula's father returns and immediately goes to confront Robinson. Paula's father swears that if he doesn't hear from his daughter in three days, he will bring the cops down on John. John explains that Paula has second thoughts about the training and had taken off. He didn't have a clue as to where she had gone. Two days later, the Godfrey family received a handwritten and signed letter from Paula. The letter assured her parents that she was okay and just needed to get out of town. Unconvinced, the Godfrey family handed the letter over to the police. A few days later, the police received a second handwritten letter signed by Paula. In this letter, Paula explained how she was trying to get away from her family and how helpful Robinson had been in facilitating that. The Godfrey family, unsurprisingly, were far from convinced. On the other hand, the police 
found this letter convincing enough and proceeded to remove Paula from the missing persons case and close her case. All from a letter? Yeah. There, the, it, do, it's, it's always the worst with the true crime, how fucking incompetent the cops are. Literally a second letter and they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. No, she's not on the missing persons list. Nah, case closed. Couldn't be, couldn't be. Case closed, I'm just a, I'm just a beat reporter and an old cop. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking infuriating. Among John Robinson's many scams, he was beginning to explore the profitability of black market child adoptions. Conveniently, John's brother, Don, and his wife, Helen, were having increasingly more trouble conceiving a child of their own. They also found themselves falling short of getting approval from adoption agencies. Like the devil at the crossroads, John boasted of his various connections to adoption businesses. He promised to help them out and facilitate an adoption for a mere $5,500. Of course. With little to no other options left, the couple agreed. John began his hunt to find someone willing to part with their child, but found it deceptively hard through the many homes and organizations. Ever determined, John reasoned that he needed to go directly to the source if he were to make this happen. Under the name John Osborne, he reached out to Kathy Stackpole, a social worker at a battered women's shelter. John explained that he represented an organization that provided help for single mothers. He explained further that he did this by providing employment opportunities as well as rent-free housing. Excited by the promising opportunity, Kathy selected 19-year-old Lisa Stacy from the shelter. After a short but violent marriage, Stacy had ended up at the shelter with her infant daughter, Tiffany. Lisa, when presented with the opportunity, was thrilled. Plans were set in motion, and soon Lisa Stacy was waiting for Osborne with her daughter, Tiffany, at her sister-in-law's place. Osborne arrived and began loading her things into the car. Lisa traded goodbyes with her sister-in-law and promised that she would come back and gather the rest of her stuff once she was all settled. The three then drove and checked into the Overland Park Rockway Inn. John explained it was a temporary situation as the organization finalized her living arrangements. John told Lisa that he was going to move her to new living arrangements in Chicago. Before doing so, he had her sign four blank pieces of paper and list all primary family addresses. John, Lisa, and her daughter, Tiffany, checked out of the inn on the 10th of January, 1985. On the 11th of January, John Robinson meets brother Dale and his wife Helen at the airport with their new bundle of joy. What they once thought was impossible now stood in front of them. John hands over their new adopted daughter along with all of the seemingly official legal paperwork for her adoption. He also explains that the child's mother had tragically taken her own life. On the 13th of January, both Kathy Stackpole and Lisa's mother-in-law, Betty, received typed letters signed by Lisa. The letters thanked each of them for their help, but that she needed to get away from the area. This letter did little to convince Betty as she explained Lisa had no idea how to type. A few days later, John had made various calls to others, like Kathy, looking for Elisa, explaining he couldn't find her in the hotel nor the apartment. Like Paula, Lisa Stacy was never seen again. 
Uh, I take back what I said about this guy. Yeah, you're not such a big fan of him? Not a big fan. I mean, 5500 for a baby? That's too much! Around this same time, investigations into John Robinson had begun both by his parole officer, Steve Haynes, and the Secret Service. At the Secret Service offices, Irv Blattner turned himself in, offering to turn government witness against John Robinson. Irv Blattner had worked as Robinson's assistant for a few years now, due to a recent questioning of Robinson by the Secret Service about an, an illegally cashed check by a friend of his. Irv had suspected Robinson would lay the blame on him. Irv decided to turn himself in as a witness and expose all of Robinson's illicit activities to get ahead of this. Robinson was eventually arrested for illegally cashing the check, but was able to post the $50,000 bond. Throughout this investigation into Robinson, John was becoming a more prominent player in the BDSM prostitution game. This was also when the FBI began to take interest in Robinson. Due to this check fiasco, Robinson was called to a probation violation meeting. Robinson and his lawyer were able to skirt anything from sticking, but the FBI did learn of his property connected to Equi 2. They believed Robinson was using this location as a brothel and began staking it out. Eventually, John Robinson left town for a while, and the FBI took this opportunity to raid the location. In the apartment, they discovered Teresa Williams, a woman John had slowly pushed into prostitution, and a vital player in John Robinson's eventual first arrest. John had kept her in, in the apartment and soon had started assaulting her. She described one instance when she had displeased a client and Robinson had threatened her by shoving a loaded gun up her vagina. Jesus. Teresa also went into detail about the plot John had been planning against Blattner. He had told her to keep a diary about her everyday life, then slowly start to sprinkle in her fear of Blattner. This would then be used to frame Blattner for her murder by his hand. Robinson had assured her that she wouldn't actually die, merely escape to the Bahamas. Armed with all this information, the FBI immediately removed Teresa from the location and put her into protective custody. Upon discovering her disappearance, John hired a private investigator to hunt her down. After a couple of weeks, the private investigator, Charles Lane, a fucking great private That's investigator great name, name, tracked her down and began staking out her location. The FBI took action and started questioning Lane. In that time, they were able to get Teresa out and much further away from Robinson. John Robinson began feeling the law closing in on him and his luck running out. He would soon find himself a part of a marathon run of court cases. In 1985, he found himself in court for various parole violations, though this time John could not slither away and the judge denied his parole. Robinson lawyer, unfortunately, was able to get this decision overturned in 1986. In 1986, he found himself back in court, this time for felony theft. John was found guilty sentenced to 5 to 14 years in jail and denied their appeal. Then, again, in 1987, John found himself in court for attempting fraud. Among the many court cases that John found himself in, he still made time to work on his shell companies. This time, John was searching for a secretary 
to work for his equi companies. Catherine Clampett would be the unfortunate soul to fill this position. Catherine soon discovered that she would need to travel across the country on a business trip for the company. Catherine, too, would never be seen again. Shortly after this, John would turn himself in to the Johnson County Jail for his felony theft charge. At the Kansas State Penitentiary is where he would serve the first five years of his sentence. Throughout these years, John suffered numerous strokes inside. He then finished that sentence but was immediately handed over to the Missouri prison system. He was first transferred to Moberly Correctional due to his failing health in 1991. He was then switched over to Western Missouri Correctional Center to finish out the remainder of his sentence. That just sounded like a big run-on sentence. (laughs) (laughs) He was in court for like six years and still managed to kill somebody. That is actually nuts. Um, It's fucking crazy. He was obviously a successful con man because he kept posting bail and shit. Yeah, it... The way you were describing it and like, okay, the FBI is looking into it. They staked his house and then, okay, they got that girl out. And then it's like, oh, he got his own PI. He staked the girl out. It's like they're on the same like playing field. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, we have enough information now, but obviously the legal system, it's going to take a couple of years. You can go file appeals and somehow yeah, I mean, kill a secretary. For all these initial missing persons, all these women that go missing, it's not like he's not a person of interest. He's interviewed every single time by the cops, but they just have nothing to connect him to them. So they question him. He's like, oh, no, she ran away. And they're like, okay, must have run away. That's tough, man. I wonder, like... You're no Corey Lane. Dude found a woman in FBI witness protection. Yeah, that's pretty nice. I mean, granted, they didn't pull her, like, across the country. Like, they were keeping her close to keep questioning her, but... Just yeah. the town over. Just the town over. Yeah. But, yeah, he, he had to do his time in Kansas City and then also then account for his time in fucking Missouri. So he got transferred, and he suffered a ton of strokes. Fucking shitbag. Good. Yeah, good. 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 Um, does he have... So I'm trying to think of, like, his M.O. Yeah. His modus operandi, oh. yeah. as some would call it. Um, that's uh, good trivia to know. Oh, oh yeah, that might have come up somewhere. Whoa! So it seems that he's always like filling positions with um, young women. Mm-hmm. Do we have any details on the women? Like, is there a specific type of woman, or is it just kind of putting it out there? And he knows they're probably young, looking for like a first job, gullible potential victims. Yeah, pretty much. It's almost my like amateur interpretation of it. It's more opportunity and stuff like that. When we get into the second section, when, when he discovers the internet and lots of porn. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, (laughs) we'll, we'll see more of an MO. Um, but it's, it's mainly just like manipulation and a lot more opportunities and stuff like that. Got it. That are presented from these victims. So let's get into when John discovers the internet. Because we're still in early, early, late 80s, early 90s. We're, you know, on the precipice of the World Wide Web. The Weird Wide Web. That's us. 
Just wanted to. I figured yeah, now is a good time again. for a plug. Yeah. Yeah. Our sponsorship, us. Us. Please. Sponsored by us. Please listen. Thanks. Continue listening. If you made it here, good job. Keep going. You got this. <laughs> Finishing out the remainder of his sentence at Western Missouri Correctional Center, John was looking for ways to pass time. He found himself finding more and more time amongst the facilities of the library. Eventually, he finds himself working as an assistant to the prison librarian, Beverly Bonner. Over the years, the two found themselves becoming more and more attached. The two had such a connection that when the time came for John's release, Beverly divorced her husband, the prison physician, Dr. William Bonner, and moved with John down to Kansas City. Starting her new life with John, she had set up her alimony checks to be forwarded to their new location. The checks continued to this address for many years, even though upon leaving with John for Kansas City, Beverly Bonner was never seen again. Dude, this guy's 100% Ted Bundy. (laughs) Almost better. What? Went to whoa, jail. whoa, 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 whoa. Well, better in the sense of... Uh, if we were doing a serial killer draft. Yeah, if we were drafting. Like, emotions aside, feelings aside, obviously terrible. Terrible things they're doing. Mm-hmm. But if we're playing a fantasy serial killer league, yeah, you're drafting this guy above Ted Mundy? Above is tough, but this, this guy, he's out for a very long time. I mean, he gets away with a lot. Because there's no, like, there's almost no gratification of the kill. It's interesting, because when you look at serial killers, there's many different kind of... Oh, yeah. I've watched Manhunter. Yeah. There's different profiles. Some enjoy the kill. Some enjoy the torment before the kill. And All stuff have like mommy that. issues. Totally. This guy's got a ton of those. But he really, like, there's no enjoyment of the kill it's almost uh like a means to an end beverly bonner it's for her alimony checks and then gone she's done you know out of the picture but the alimony checks keep coming to him so it's like he's more into the con of the thing than anything but he is very big into the bdsm world very big and i'm sure we'll get into that with the internet yeah, I mean, he was already kind of into it with, like, Teresa Williams, like, running that prostitution ring and shit like that. Yeah, but then you got to order, like, those, or you got to make your own leather. How, how would that work back then? A shop? Would you have to go to, like, a shop? Like a leather shop? Yeah. Yeah. He like, probably got a job there and embezzled leather from them, <laughs> knowing him. Beverly's ex-husband, Dr. William Bonner, soon began receiving typed and signed letters. In the letters, Beverly explained that she had started working for Robinson, and frankly, it was going great. She was traveling the world for work. Dr. Bonner honestly didn't pay much attention to the letters. The only moment that struck him as odd was when Beverly did not show up for their eldest son's funeral. Oh, yeah, a little weird. Huh, huh, maybe busy. Maybe she's traveling on work as a doctor. (laughs) I'm a learned doctor. (laughs) After being released from prison, John Robinson would discover the wonders of the internet and its many online chat rooms. 
it is rumored that at one point, John had as many as five computers in his home at one time. All on alt.bestiality.com. <laughs> Tips and tricks. John quickly discovered the BDSM communities across the net and donned the title Slave Master. He immediately recognized the possibility and ease to which he could lure new victims to himself. In 1994, on one of these BDSM chat rooms, Slave Master met 46-year-old Sheila Faith. Sheila was a single mother taking care of her 15-year-old disabled daughter, Debbie. While the BDSM was the initiator of the conversation, what really pulled Sheila in was John's promises. He expressed his interest in housing and fully taking care of Sheila and her daughter, Debbie. Soon, against the protest of her friends and family, Sheila decided she would move to Kansas City with John. Mind made up, John soon arrived like the harbinger of death to pick up Sheila and Debbie and take them to Kansas City. They remained there long enough for Debbie's disability checks to change mailing addresses. Then both Sheila and Debbie were never seen again. Not long after, Sheila's brother, William Hal, began receiving typed and signed letters from Sheila. Letters spewing the same lies as many others before it. William was right fully unconvinced and, without being able to contact Sheila, decided to reach out to social services. He inquired where were the disability checks being sent, and could he track them down. Depressingly, Social Security Services refused to release that information, and William was frustratingly stuck. Social Services would then receive a letter indicating that Debbie was now fully disabled entitling her to an increase in disability checks. The letter they received was authorized by Dr. William Bonner. John Robinson would again find himself on the many BDSM sites in 1997. This time, he met the Polish immigrant Isabel Luicka, and the two quickly formed a bond. Isabella's interest in the BDSM world had sparked when she was 19, and the internet had had opened up a whole new outlet to express that. Connecting with John, she decided to move away from her family in Indiana and closer to John in Kansas City. Living up to his moniker, John soon had Isabella sign a 115-year slave contract. Oh. This contract gave John complete control over her financials and her pledge to be John's obedient slave. The two were seen in a bookstore that Isabella frequented called the Robert Meyer Bookstore. Robert, the owner, had frequently talked to Isabella when she came in and recalls overhearing her tell Robinson she was going to start traveling. This was the last time that Isabella Luica would be seen again. Her disappearance was swiftly followed by typed and signed letters arriving at her family's doors. The letters talked of her many travels across the world. 1999, John Robinson would meet another unfortunate victim online, one that would eventually lead to his downfall. Oh, shit! Suzetta Troughton found herself in contact with a wealthy businessman only known as J.R. The two had met in a BDSM chat room, and things were quickly heating up. Soon, J.R. offered her a proposal. Knowing she was a nurse, he explained that he was taking care of his ailing father, 
and wanted to have her come and take care of him. Simultaneously, they could also explore all the kinky stuff that had merely been messaged about up to this point. Wait, wait, wait. So she is saying this. What do you mean? She's saying, you can come help my sick dad. The, the poster, JR, is suggesting this. Oh, the other way. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was her, and I was just like, oh, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. No, this is, this is all JR. Wonder who JR could be. Uh, it's a mystery. Pretty shitty basketball player who now <laughs> golfs for college. <laughs> no idea who you're talking about. J.R. Smith. Oh, that name. <laughs> Sports. Sports. Books. <laughs> Suzetta, understandably hesitant, suggests that maybe she could come visit and meet his father and family to see if it would work out. J.R., who was, in fact, John Robinson, oh! yeah, enlisted the help of several colleagues to help deceive Suzette. After five days, she had been convinced and made plans to move to Kansas City. Wait, there's people helping him? Oh, yeah. Because he's running multiple fucking cons. It's like I, uh, uh, Irv Blattner. Like, he had people working for him and running fucking scams. Yeah, but, like, I get scams, but, like, this is clearly to lure a girl in and I'm assuming kill her. I'm, I'm assuming that he told them, he's like, oh, yeah, she's got alimony checks coming in that we can start earning or something like that. I'm sure he's deceiving yeah. them about him deceiving her as well, you know? This guy is fucking... I think there's, there's too many wires over here and, and they're getting crossed. Uh, yeah, this guy's a fucking absolute devil. Whoever, the devil. This, whoever this JR guy is. Kill the fucking kid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. She went to see him. For, literally murdered her and her mother for disability check. Pretty fucked. It's pretty fucked. In February of 2000, Suzette moved into an apartment paid for by JR in Kansas City. He explains he needs to finish up a few business deals before she can move in with him full time. JR visits Suzette regularly to have sex, cataloging the events by taking pictures. Suzette would share these pictures with a friend of hers, Crystal Ferguson, through email. The two maintained consistent email communication discussing many things. In March of 2000, Suzette would disappear. The emails to Crystal, however, continued to come. Crystal notes that the emails were noticeably different. Her writing style was different. She stopped talking about her life, and she signed off as Suze, a nickname she had never used. Crystal, determined to uncover the imposter author, played along. Suze kept talking about how well her master treats her and how much she wanted Crystal to experience it. Crystal went along with it, and J.R. began emailing her. Then another master started reaching out to Crystal by email by the name JT. He talked about how he was a stern but fair master. Oh no, was he a member of InSync too? All Crystal took from these emails was how similar the writing style was to Suze's. After a few emails, JT began calling Crystal. This followed by a third person reaching out, another master. This one 
going by the name Tony. Tony again offers up to be her master and leaves multiple numbers she can reach out to. Crystal enlisted the help of a police friend to trace these numbers. Each one led back to John Edward Robinson. Whoa. JR, man. What are you doing? Murdering. Stealing. Sues. Yeah. I got to say, the cool thing is to see, uh, obviously, his, uh, I mean, cool, um, granted, given the circumstances, the way things are evolving from, obviously, the letters to emails. Um, yeah. He's stuck with the same fucking idea. And I guess letters, I was thinking the whole time you're like saying how many letters is like, how common was it for people in like the late 80s and 90s just to be sending letters home? Received letters, yeah. And, and, and even with the introduction of email and stuff like that, he still kept up the emailing thing, which we'll, we'll hear about in a second. Yeah, he still, he, does, he still does the letter thing. That's so... It's crazy for everyone. I mean, not for nothing one of the most infamous serial killers, Zodiac Killer. Mm-hmm. Basically, he went all letters. Who they just claim to have caught, but I'm not convinced. They also claim they know who Jack the Ripper is. Not, no. Yeah. Yeah, no, but they don't. I don't think that this this person they claim to be the Zodiac Killer did it either. You, you got better ideas? No, I don't got better. Well, I think, I think like Jack the Ripper, more crimes are being put together than probably actually were i think there are a couple like jack the ripper is like notorious that probably wasn't slicing whores yeah it was probably just a bunch of people that sliced up a bunch of whores that's terrible i fucking hate that i just said that (laughs) sentence so much that's so awful i just led you into that come here Uh. yale take it (laughs) <laughs> let's get into the his final fucking downfall Zet's family had of course begun receiving typed and signed letters from Suzette at this point John had become incredibly lazy and careless in covering up his trails the letters supposedly talked about the two's travels abroad yet the envelopes were postmarked in Kansas City on top of that, Suzette's mother recalls the spelling of Suzette's own dogs was consistently misspelled, heightening the family's suspicion to an all-time high. Then, John Robinson called the family searching for Suzette, saying he was not able to find her. Dawn, Suzette's sister, immediately contacted the local police. She discovered that Robinson was already under investigation, unbeknownst to him. Crystal was then reached out to by Detective Jack Boyer in regards to her disappearance. She explained the entire email situation and asked him if she should stop making contact. He said she should continue, but forward all of her correspondence to him. During the investigation, Robinson met with several unnamed women at the Extended Stay America Hotel. The task force now created to investigate him staked out this and many other locations. One woman was sent down to the front desk and the clerk and had the clerk print out what he was horrified to discover to be a slave contract. 
another woman was run out of the room, and Robinson walked away with hundreds of dollars worth of sex toys. One more woman explained to the detectives that Robinson had gone far beyond the safe bounds and began assaulting her. After that, he took pictures of her and left. With her confession, investigators could get an arrest warrant for Robinson and soon had him in custody. At the time, online, Robinson was in the midst of convincing a woman and her 8-year-old to move in with him and sign over the rights to her car. Having arrested Robinson, the task force was able to raid his mobile home. Hidden on the property were two 55-gallon chemical drums. While rolling the barrels out uh, to be held in evidence, one tipped over, and some tiny droplets of blood began to seep out. The drums were opened, and the decomposing bodies of Isabel Lewicka and Suzette Troughton were discovered. The task force then traveled to Missouri, where a storage unit was held in Robinson's name. Inside the storage unit, three more drums were discovered. These barrels contained the bodies of Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her daughter, Debbie. All the victims had sustained lethal blows to their head. In 2002, John Robinson faced his first round of trials in Kansas City for three murder charges. He was found guilty on all three accounts in what was known as the longest Kansas City court case. He received a death sentence for the murders of Troughton and Lewicka and a life sentence for the murder of Lisa Stacy. Next up, he would then have to face five murder charges in Missouri. To the protest of many, John made a deal with the prosecutor, settling with a guilty plea and a life sentence. John Robinson remains, to this day, on death row at El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas City. Then, in 2005, Nancy Jo Lynch would officially file for divorce after 41 years of marriage. Damn. And that's the internet's first serial killer. Nah, it ain't no Kate Mayslayer. <laughs> it's much worse. Mr. Mackey could take this guy. If we're doing this serial killer fantasy league, that now sounds like a great idea. I'm taking the Kate Mayslayer number one. Unfortunately, I think the serial killer fantasy league already a thing that's been done. Unfortunately, it is. yeah, it's a great idea though. It's a great idea. I don't mean to shoot down your idea. Uh, yeah. Guy's fucking crazy. And honestly, just went unfucking checked for so long. Yeah. Like, what the... F- also, like, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah. All these deaths, all these killings and shit. And it seems like it is all for, like, the money. Or, totally. like, the little power grab of, like, what little they have. It's power control and a money grab. Because like, like they said when they found it in the court case, all of them, left side of the head, quick blow. There's no, like... Not torture. Not no like, torture. No, like, mutilation. It's literally, I'm done with you. Out. That's fucking... Uh, that's crazy. People, like, serial killers have different brains. Fun fact, I've been in a room with a serial killer. That is super fun and actually we were sitting a little farther than we are okay very close yeah 
Granted, like if I I jump at you, I could get you. Oh, he he could have turned around and jumped at me. Yeah. So to give you the broader story, courtroom mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. So my senior year of college, had to do an internship, and I was just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do. And this is also when I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do. So I was thinking like, oh, maybe law school, whatever. So I got an internship at the public defender's office. Just so happened that that fall, while I'm doing my internship, uh, one of the biggest double murder cases is coming through the county courthouse where I am interning at. This dude had already been tried and found guilty of two murders before, and this was a second trial coming up for another double murder that he was committing. What happened after his first conviction... He was in the jail, which was right by the the county courthouse, which I don't think anyone realized was like two blocks from our college. And he escaped before the start of the second trial, like right before it. Fucking escaped to go hide evidence for the second trial and then like turned himself back in. Holy fuck, you were in the same room as that dude? I got to watch the entire case and I was sitting front row and he was over the little barrier at the fucking table. And he would like turn around and he looked at me one time and I was like, dude, this guy, like there's something in his eyes yeah. that is different. And being in a room with those people while they're showing all of the pictures and the evidence and this guy is just like not nothing there, but like no reaction is even scarier that like knowing he is present and not reacting and fucking like seeing that. I was like, oh, these people are fucked. Robinson's Kansas City trial, which is at the least at the time was known as the longest trial it sounds brutal for like any family or friends of the victims they watched in its entirety a full sex tape of him and suzette it's fucking crazy i just like i can't believe how long that motherfucker just skirted through any kind of jail time for anything. Oh, a bit of probation here. He posted bail like five fucking times for thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. He was posting bail. I, I don't know where he, like he was clearly a good fucking con man because he was always posting bail. Yeah, and then just doing the same fucking thing. Letters, uh, I don't know. I don't know where they are. Same fucking letters, man. Same fucking letters. I, there was, man, I, I meant to double check this one of the victims i think it was lisa stacy one of them had called like one of their relatives is like i don't feel comfortable he's making me sign letters oh hold on he's coming and then hung up and that was the last time it's like it was there i feel like there was everything was there to convict him so much fucking earlier and save so many countless women and their children and nope i got a letter and it's signed Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Put Off the, the missing persons list. Yeah. And the fact that he was like, so he stayed in like Kansas City the most of the time, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Kansas City and Missouri were like the, his main sections. You mean like Kansas City, Missouri? Yeah. <laughs> Are you one of those guys who doesn't realize Kansas City is in Missouri? No, I just can't uh, for the life of me remember the other place in Missouri he was. Uh... You mean New York City, Missouri? Yeah, New York City, Missouri. Gabagoo. They just steal cities' names in Missouri. No, this was 
It was uh, very fascinating. When you said the first internet serial killer, I'm almost happy that it happened this way, where like he was doing this before and then was introduced and realized, like, oh, I can use this. Yeah, he saw it as a tool to just reach out to more women, mm-hmm. not like, oh, look at this tool. I can now start killing. Yeah, that's you know? what I was worried about, someone being like, oh, what a great invention. Yeah. I can easily kill people with this. Which there are some of those people maybe we'll cover in the future. Oh. There's the Twitter killer. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, how do you kill someone in 140 characters or less? What are, I think they're up to like 250 now, right? I don't know. I'm not on Twitter. I don't know. Technically, I we are. Uh, <laughs> we should note this. I still don't know how Twitter works. We do have one, but yeah, reach out on on tweet tweet Twitter tweet Twitter at Weird Wide Tweet Twitter. Um, yeah, this was. I mean, hey, serial killers always fascinating subject. I will say, very interesting, mm-hmm. and it was really cool to see like. It's funny how it happened at the turn of the century, too. Being like, oh, I'm writing these hand letters. And then it's like, email. And then it's just like, oh, shit. I left my John Robinson at Gmail CC'd on this one. They're going to get me. Yeah. I mean, he started out, you know, he was already kind of experimenting with bringing these women from out of town so they knew nobody in the area through, you know, wanted ads, through ads for jobs and stuff like that. Yeah. And then he gets out of jail after he pulled a librarian out of jail and murdered her, and it was just like, oh, shit. You mean I can just talk to anybody at real people on the fucking internet that are also into BDSM like I am? Let's kill a bunch of people, is probably what he said. Uh, probably. Probably. Also, whenever you told me his name, the first, what's his full name? John Jonathan Edward Robinson Sr.? Yeah, anyone, and even, like, he married, um... Nancy Joe Lynch? Yeah. Why are all the killers have the three names? Like, I mentioned John Wayne Gacy, all the assassinations by people, that old guy Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, there's some good conspiracies around Edgar Allan Poe's death, but he wasn't on the internet, so... Check out somebody else's podcast! (laughs) Someone who's lame and covers actual historical things. Oh, real world things? Ugh, gross. But thank you for joining me on another deep dive into the strange internet Nile. Thank you, Yale, because this just makes me want to binge Summer of 84 one more time. Ooh, we love it. If you have an internet subject that you want us to write about, reach out to us at weirdwidewebpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at weirdwideweb.pod, or you can follow us on Twitter at weirdwidewebpod, pod in all capitals, or check us out on YouTube, where we can also post, you know, our short clips and our full episodes at Weird Wide Web. Oh, been another great one. Please, if you liked it, leave us a review, rate us. It really, really helps us out, and, uh... Helps get us out to more people, more uh, more of our weird wide weirdos. Yeah, our weird wide weirdos. Yeah, Ooh, our, like that. our web of weirdos. Our web of more like spiders. Not, 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 not Spider-Man. A man spider. A man spider. I'm, I'm Snake Man. <laughs> oh, Snake Man. Well, thanks for joining me again, Niall, on this deep dive into the moon.